If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Mark Morano is unleashed, and he's taking on the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Welcome to Unleashed on TNT with Mark Morano. All right, breaking news. The BBC bison have come back from the brink. Endangered species success story reintroduced in many parts of Europe after being extinct. Also goes true, by the way, for polar bears. Polar bears are disappearing, but only from Al Gore's books and movies. And that's because their numbers are at or near historic population highs. But this is, we're going to talk about endangered species. We're going to open up with this BBC clip. This is clip one telling you how bison are no longer endangered. A hundred years ago, these imposing animals had died out in the wild. But European bison have made an amazing comeback. It's actually wonderful that we didn't lose the species because it almost went extinct. In the 1920s, they started a breeding program from these few individuals that remained in zoos. And from then, the, the population has steadily increased and it's been reintroduced now in many places in Europe. There were just 54 bison remaining in captivity. Now there are over 7,000 living wild in places like Bulgaria and Romania. And even more live semi-wild behind fences, like here in the woods of southern England. At this park in northern Romania, they've released 30 animals from captivity. It's now grown to three herds of 70 bison. But initially, they have to be kept in large enclosures. We used the so-called soft reintroduction. The animals simply learn to eat the local species, simply learn to adapt. So when finally we release the animal succeed to survive. Weighing up to 850 kilograms, they're Europe's largest wild land mammal, so they can have a big impact on the environment, which benefits lots of other plants and animals. An endangered species success story. Now, you can go too far, obviously, with reintroducing animals, reintroducing the grizzly bear. Wolves cause problems with farmers in the West. But because of, I would say, captive breeding, and this could even apply to reptiles, amphibians. Now, there's a lot of concern about releasing reptiles, particularly into the wild, because they may have diseases that nature can't handle. And so, but you can preserve a species, at least in captivity or at least in certain parameters. Uh, and we're talking about real species, not the lab-grown version that Bill Gates is trying to get you to eat with meat and other things. But this endangered species, when I did the Amazon rainforest, and I'd like to show clips of that. I'll probably bring that at some point and do a retrospective on the Amazon rainforest. Uh, I was asked to testify to the United States Congress in 2019, the, the House, I believe, Resources Committee. And I was there with Dr. Patrick Moore, the, the co-founder of Greenpeace, who left the organization because it came too radical. And we got to go up against, directly up against, UN lead scientists, both former IPCC and also of this new UN species report. And the idea, as you can imagine, was modeled exactly after the climate report. Basically, the world needs to go full Marxist or there'll be no species left. Uh, this is a clip of me, about a one minute clip, clip two, testifying to the US Congress about endangered species and the overblown hype. But in terms of this latest United Nations report, it is very 
a very thinly veiled attempt to hype, distort biodiversity concerns, which there are many legitimate ones, but not as presented by the United Nations. It's the latest UN appeal to give it more money, more power, more scientific authority, more money, and more regulatory control of the economy and people's lives. The UN Species Report requires, quote, a huge transformation is needed across the economy to protect and restore nature. What kind of a, a huge transformation are we talking about? Well, the UN in its press release invoked authoritative science, and that is, of course, produced by the United Nations. The UN Executive Secretary declared that it presents authoritative silence, science to, to decision makers for their consideration. At best, the US science represents nothing more than authoritative bureaucracy. A more accurate term would be authoritative propaganda. I was having a lot of fun there, and I was letting them know exactly what this United Nations species process modeled after the climate process was all about. And the man sitting next to me was the, the lead author of this report uh, and of, from the United Nations. And this was at a, a, uh, a House hearing in the United States Senate the Democrats controlled at the time. Republicans invited me as a minority witness, as well as Dr. Patrick Moore. Uh, and I, I tried to lay out, first of all, what the UN was doing. They were claiming a million species were going to be going extinct and disappearing, uh, and that all known species demand. And of course, I had dealt with a lot of this in my Amazon rainforest documentary, particularly on species, because it was it was actually Dr. Patrick Moore who pointed out Edward O. Wilson, the biologist from Harvard at the time, had predicted you know all these millions of species we never that were going extinct, but we didn't have any Latin names, didn't know which species were actually going extinct because they were species that were theoretical in a computer model that they hadn't yet been discovered, but that they they might be out there in the wild. And Dr. Patrick Moore at the time said, yes, we found the endangered species. They're in the electrons of the hard drives of Edward O. Wilson's computer at Harvard. In other words, they don't exist. It's a theoretical exercise. And this is the same kind of science that the United Nations picked up. This is clip uh, three, part two of my testimony before the U.S. Congress. There's another clip. I think you'll, uh, I think you'll enjoy this because I, I'm trying to lay out the case of why the U.N. Species Report was junk science. We have the former UN chief, Christiana Figueres, who I've interviewed for the book, talking about, you know, we seek a centralized transformation that will make life on planet Earth very different, using hyped environmental scares. I go back to the 1960s and show that from overpopulation, deforestation, global cooling, resource scarcity, no matter the environmental scare, the solution was always the same. Wealth redistribution, central planning, and sovereignty limiting treaties. So what I'm here today is to tell you I'm not here to give some vague critique of the United Nations. I'm here to tell you that the three lead authors here, or the three top officials from the UN, are part of this con that the United Nations presents itself as the world's expert on scientists, the world's leading authorities. The standards by which these summary for policymakers are issued, they actually have line by line has to be agreed on by UN bureaucrats, politicians, and then the underlying report, which hasn't been released yet on the species, has to be made in line with what was agreed to by the political class. This is not a scientific process, and in fact, in my testimony, I show how it violates the Department of Energy's own standards for US science to be taken uh, seriously on this. Yes, uh, and that was Bob Watson. That was a former UN IPCC chief and the chairman at that time of this UN species report. You can see his face grimacing and in, in tortured and contorted pain uh, as I went through the uh, species 
destruction of science that they were engaged in. Well, I'm going to play you. This is clip four of me testifying. Here's what ended up happening. The chairman of the committee, which was a Democrat from California, just shut me down. Uh, they did not let me continue. Bob Watson wouldn't shake my hand after the hearing. And what was funny is that the Media Matters for America did an analysis. And even though there were, I think, four witnesses on the Democrat and just Patrick Moore and I and the Republicans, we ended up dominating the talk time, the Q&A, and, um, and subsequently the media coverage of it. This hearing was such a disaster for the Democrats that they literally held the exact same hearing three weeks later without Patrick Moore and myself. Uh, and this was just a hearing. I don't even know if you could call it a hearing. It was like a committee briefing of just the same UN scientists came back because the news cycle was robbed of them because they weren't expecting two guests, myself and Dr. Patrick Moore, two witnesses, to literally eviscerate and destroy their entire scientific report. They're used to the weak Republicans. Oh, yes, this is a concern and the UN. And well, well, we just think the UN might be going a little too far. But, you know, but, but we're not going to challenge anything they say because they are the gold standard. No, they didn't get that. They got, by name, specific criticism. I submitted a long written report. Dr. Patrick Moore's testimony was devastating. There was a lot of other, I guess you'd say, amicus briefs, although it wasn't a lawsuit, uh, from Dr. Gregory Wrightstone, CO2 Coalition, who's been a friend of the show. Uh, so this is now, this is uh, my clip three testifying, and then I'm going to have a clip of, of Patrick Moore. But let's play clip, uh, clip four, part three of my testimony to the U.S. Congress on species. One point on the polar bears, Al Gore mentioned them and featured them as an icon in his first movie. His sequel in 2017 didn't mention polar bears once. They are at or near historic population highs. So I'm not talking about the UN vaguely. I'm talking about Sir Robert Watson here, Edward Brondizio, Dr. Shin. They are the leaders of this UN politicization of species endangerment science. They are fully engaged in using what they claim, claim to be authoritative science to lobby for more power and expanding control of the United Nations. Dr. Watson actually says the future of humanity depends on action now. Dr. Watson, sitting next to me, or Sir Robert Watson, is claiming the United Nations can identify the problem, put itself in charge of the solution. He gives you, he says it's our last chance to save the planet. These are the words of a salesman, a science bureaucrat, not a disinterested... I'd like to ask the witness to direct your testimony to the chair sure. and not to your fellow... Dr. Panelists. Watson, though, these are the words of, a of not a scientist, but of a science bureaucrat doing the bidding for his organization, just as he did during the Climategate scandal. They trotted him out on all Thank the Thank you, TVs Mr. Morano. ...to say nothing to be seen here. The but chair now recognizes Sir Robert Watson for five minutes. And I was done. They just cut me off just like that. Um, and Robert Watson never actually addressed anything I said, but was smoking angry and wouldn't shake my hand, wouldn't talk to me, gave some interviews trashing me and Patrick Moore, calling us fringe. The Democrats on the committee then said that I was one time on Alex Jones's show, and therefore I, Alex Jones was testified. They were trying to link me with Alex Jones. They did everything. But we got a huge media bonanza and we, we pushed the science, we pushed the politics, we pushed it hard and we exposed this fraud on this species report in the United States Congress. This is uh, clip five. This is going to be Dr. Patrick Moore's testimony before this House Committee on Natural Resources. Uh, let's take a listen to his scientific uh, report here. It pests claims that there are eight million species yet only 1.8 million species have been identified and named. 
Thus, the IPTES believes there are 6.2 million unidentified and unnamed species. Therefore, one million of the unknown species could go extinct overnight, and we would not notice it because we would not have known they existed. This is highly unprofessional, stated politely. Scientists should not, in fact, cannot predict estimates of endangered species or species extinction based on millions of unnamed species. This is not a new phenomenon. The so-called sixth grade extinction has predicted for decades. It has not come to pass, similar to virtually every doomsday prediction made in human history. The IUCN is the only international observer organization in the UN General Assembly specifically concerned with biodiversity and nature protection. My organization, the CO2 Coalition, finds the IUCN findings on biodiversity and endangered species to be far more credible than those of the IBPPS, which are not credible in the slightest. Credible in the slightest. It is quite clear that the highly exaggerated claims of the IPPES are not so much out of concern for endangered species as they are for a front for radical political, social, and economic transformation of our entire civilization. Their recommendation for an end to economic growth alone condemns the developing world to increased poverty and suffering. Appealing to the green urban class, the IPPES recommends urban agriculture and rooftop gardens as part of their transformational agenda. No mention is made of eliminating millions, hundreds of millions of acres of former native ecosystems converted to biofuel plantations and solar farms. As with the manufactured climate crisis, they are using the specter of mass extinction as a fear tactic to scare the public into compliance. The IPBES itself is an existential threat to sensible policy on biodiversity conservation. Thank you for the opportunity to speak on this subject. Wow, Dr. Patrick Moore nailed it. Uh, and there was also, as I mentioned, supporting testimony. Uh, Gregory Wrightstone, CO2 Coalition. I just want to read you this because it gives you an overall picture. A close review of the most recent information dating back to 1870 reveals that instead of a frightening increase, extinctions are actually in a significant decline. What is apparent is that the trend of extinctions is declining rather than increasing, just the opposite of what the UN report claims. According to the report, we can expect up to 30,000 extinctions per year, yet the average over the last 40 years is about two, not 2,000, not 20,000, two species annually instead of the 30,000 the UN is claiming. That means the rate would have to multiply by up to 15,000 to reach the dizzying heights the UN is predicting. Nothing on the horizon is likely to achieve even a small fraction of that. And you saw Patrick Moore mentioning the monoculture crops and the biofuels and the solar farms. And you can add to that the wind farms and all of this land. And you can also add to that the attack on high yield agriculture, which reduces the yield per acre, which then does what? You need more farmland to produce the same food if you can't get more food from the existing farmland input. And of course, Bill Gates wants to move everything into a laboratory and abolish farms. I'm being a little facetious there, partially. And you have people like Greta Thunberg's advisor, uh, George Monbiot, Monbiot from England, who believes ending all U.S. animal agriculture, shutting down farms permanently. Remember, agriculture, farming has been around thousands of years human existence has thrived because of it, but hey, the earth can't handle it in 2024. We, This is our battle. This is what we're fighting. Um, 
it's it's just incredible. And you, you will very rarely see what happened in that congressional hearing ever repeated. Democrats aren't going to allow it. UN officials aren't going to be sent out. They're looking for milk toast Republicans, um, think tank people who don't want to challenge any narratives, who are going to just come and pick on the edges. And we find this a lot with these Republican Climate Solutions Caucus. And you have these Republicans go up there and they argue on the edges about the Green New Deal. It's just sad and pathetic and sad and pathetic. Um, anyway, the fact that they had to rehold this hearing without any uh, without any dissenting voices shows you uh, how they cannot handle uh, any dissent. Okay, uh, I wanted to do a couple breaking news items. Breaking news, Bloomberg News. Climate anxiety can feel like there's no safe harbor in the world. According to Bloomberg News, concerned citizens are, quote, crying in the office and at the dinner table. Bloomberg News asks readers and other members of the public how global warming is impacting their mental health. Their answers covered a range of emotions. And this is an actual Bloomberg News public, uh, you know, published article. It's called Bloomberg Green. Uh, Tom Spencer, there was a moment his feelings about climate change tipped over the something remote and abstract from something remote and abstract into real anxiety. The 35-year-old Brit had spent years working in PR. He found himself confronting a flood of misinformation about electric vehicles. It must have been those climate deniers lying about the vehicle range, lying about the child slavery, lying about Chinese monopoly on rare earth, lying about the fact that you have to charge your, your electric vehicle on the grid, lying uh, about all the fire hazards about, the, about them. Like most people, I had known that there was an underlying big problem, but I hadn't been, it hadn't been my problem. And he goes on, and it just talks about his anxiety. It's suddenly the feeling when it clicks, I completely understand the scale of the issue. And it goes on and it talks about people crying in their homes, people crying in their offices. And what's interesting about this is I did a report years ago, a 2020 actually report, crying over climate change. Tears, sobbing and climate grief is an actual thing for climate activists. Uh, it was a Climate Depot special report. Here's an example, Eric Holtheis, uh, and this is now 2013. I just broke down in tears while boarding a, plight, a, fl a, pl a plane at San Francisco airport while on my phone with my wife. I've never cried because of a scientific report before. He was reading the, the then new UN climate report. He broke down in tears because it was so, he's the world's top scientist. This was the thing that won the Nobel Prize. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a Nobel Peace Prize for politics. Sorry, not the Nobel Prize for science. They always like to leave out the P's. These are Nobel Prize winning scientists and scientific panel. A, it was a Nobel Peace Prize for politics, for political activism. And B, it's not a scientific panel. It's a panel of bureaucrats. The former head of it, Regenda Pachari, had said of the IPCC UN climate science panel that he, global warming was his religion. Okay, so continuing on. Um, this is a uh, uh, meteorologist. Again, this is Eric Holtheis. Trump and climate change drove me to therapy. I know many people in deep despair over climate, especially post-election. There are days when I literally can't work and we don't deserve this planet because of how we voted. In uh, a UN climate official, Evo DeBoer breaks down in a flood of tears after warning the failure to reach a climate deal could plunge the world into conflict. Uh, and then we have this guy. This is one of my favorite people. 
Uh, Peter Kalmus, Jet Propulsion Lab. I mourned waking up uh, every day. I said, Peter Kalmus of the Jet Propulsion Lab of NASA. Tears poured down when he thought about the calamity of man-made climate change. Thoughts of climate action from a scientist who gave up flying. Uh, and then he gives tears of protest. This is a guy, a scientist who does dumpster diving. And by his own admission, I'm not accusing him of anything. He admits, and his wife talks about, they did a long interview about how he would go into dumpsters and alleyways and find food, all to reduce his carbon footprint. At least he's not a hypocrite. He's trying, you know, to reduce his carbon footprint. So I give him credit for that. Um, and he goes on and says, uh, that he he gets involved in these protests against uh, um, any kind of banking, financial institutions. It's incredible. Then we have UN Christina Figueres, the former UN climate chief. She's in tears, telling kids that they will that uh, that the UN climate meetings will be insufficient to save the world. And this goes on and on. Uh, and I, I urge you to go look up at the the UN the Climate Depot crying report. But this is where we are. They hype the report and then they hype the fear of either species, of climate, uh, of a virus, of terrorism, of overfitting Russia. And yeah, I'm even including some of the Cold War in that uh, overblown fears uh, that they then can justify seizure of power, emergency decrees. This is how the game is played. This is where we are. The most recent, the most, the one on the front burner which is what we're going to talk about coming up after the break, is going to be the World Health Organization pandemic treaty, the um, uh, tyranny of uh, what they're proposing with Bill Gates-funded scientists at the WHO declaring global instant lockdown. So when we come back on Unleashed with Mark Moreno, Nick Murray, who has spent 15 years in local state-level politics in New England, building coalitions, uh, free market is is it a, a free market activist is going to be talking to us about everything from lockdown to pandemic rules and the freedom challenge to America, our education system. Stay tuned. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. TNT. Sonia Poulton. You feel the need to describe yourself along with being a useless eater, free speech isn't a phobia, as a male with a penis. Why would you feel the need to describe yourself as such? Well, you never know these days, do you? Anyone can have a penis, apparently. So just thought you better make sure everybody knows. And that, and that is the reality, isn't it? Words have lost all meaning. And one of the things that I wanted you to come on and come and join me about and comment about is the whole issue of gender and transgenderism. Are you cis, Jack? No. There's no such thing. There was, there was literally no such thing until a couple of years ago. And it's, it's their religion. It's not mine. And I refuse to get involved with this sort of terminology. It's ridiculous. Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like, I don't remember what I did last week, but like, I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible. I'm dying. I wasn't working. So I had all of these hospital bills and we had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps. 
or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lime is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. Today's News Talk Radio. Come on, let the man talk. We never censor our hosts. Good. Now, talk. Uncensored News. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, well, joining us on the program now is Nick Murray, a local state political activist in New England, a freedom activist, educational activist. Uh, Welcome to the program today, Nick. Thanks so much for having me on, Mark. Good to be with you. Thank you. All right, well, you're uh, from New England, which... Even the Republicans, it's I find hard up there to get excited about. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about. We were just talking. I was just talking about the WHO pandemic treaty and the the idea of ginning up fear by government and activists. And I was talking about endangered species report from the UN. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about even fear of terrorism. And of course, we're talking about public health uh, virus fears, uh, where you end up with emergency decrees. They bypass democracy. Uh, tell us a little bit about the New England states. I mean, first of all, like New Hampshire was live free or die. Did New Hampshire live free during COVID? I know Maine uh, was pretty insane with their governor and uh, lockdowns. Um, what lessons do we learn from the COVID lockdowns? How bad was it in your neck of the woods uh, for these restrictions and the from vax and masks and lockdown mandates? Oh, it's a saga. There were so many. Um, it's it's quite a quite a story. I'll say to the New Hampshire question, they probably did better than the other states, but it's a low bar, admittedly. <laughs> um, and it's interesting that you you know you lead in the segment talking about the Endangered Species Act and the overreach of federal bureaucrats based on that um, th- based on that delineation. We are seeing that directly here in Maine as NOAA is going after the lobster fishery. And so for the first time ever, we have a recorded right whale uh, death uh, due to entanglement. There hadn't been one for 20 years. Um, but in the, you know, in the last couple of years, this had been a, a big fight for the lobster fishery here, which is about 3,500 independent business owners, small business owners that are being directly affected by bureaucrats in DC yeah. rewriting the rules. And so when you look at that, and obviously all of this is based on these modeling um, that's yeah. come that comes from on high in the expert class in DC. And so I think that's a that's an accurate parallel to what we saw in COVID here in New England and Maine specifically in regards to the federal government. Yeah, in terms so of lobster, lobster, well, the lobster fishermen, it's funny because they have the offshore wind, which we know is right. causing a mass increase in these whale deaths. You even have the federal government tacitly admitting it. And yet you have you have like all these Republican state offices, but the Democrats are still silent. I mean, most of them, there might be a couple of Democrat lawmakers. The environmentalists are silent. It turns out they're being paid by the wind subsidies. And then, of course, it doesn't really matter how many whales they killed because, A, it's politically protected, and B, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, the money is going to be pumping in for decades. And they're already talking about Biden overspending the Inflation Reduction Act well beyond what Congress authorized of a few hundred billion to hitting one trillion dollars. They're just pulling the money out wherever they want. And they're acting like there was no congressional uh, oversight or passage of this bill. So in terms of this, you know, they want to. And the other thing that mentioned is, and you can comment on this, is when you crush these small businesses, who replaces the main lobster? Is it going to be potentially Bill Gates lab grown lobster or is it going to go to Asian countries, China and other places uh, where they have zero environmental standards? Well, that's a that's a great point. It's interesting because the main lobster fishery ships 
a lot of their product to Asia. There's a huge demand out there. Yeah. So I, I don't know, you know, if, if you crush small businesses under this weight of the state regulation, the state tax and regulatory regime is already bad enough here in Maine, um, as opposed to New Hampshire, you, you could say, but again, a low bar in New England. Um, but addition to these federal rules, this could put this fishery out of business. And this is this is the lifeblood of a small business economy, independent business economy here in Maine. We have 95%, I think, of our businesses are small businesses um, just because we're a small state. But but yeah, you just look at this stuff and it, and it comes from on high um, and it could have this terrible effect. We saw our governor use the same philosophy during COVID to say, OK, this is a threat. Uh, the experts told us a threat. So we have to close every business, no matter if you live in a rural area with you know yeah. 40 people in your town or if you live in a city. And I think that's an that's an accurate microcosm to what we saw here. It was these top down rules. Uh, with disregard for people's circumstances, you couldn't run your own life. You couldn't run your own business because we had a message from the experts that that we needed to uh, to make sure everybody uh, heard and and stuck to. So th that's where it all flew from. I mean, that's why I wrote a report for for Maine Policy Institute, the free market think tank here back then. My friends and former colleagues um, who are doing great work here to spread freedom, because. Even looking back, you got to give folks the benefit of the doubt of what they knew back then. And I really tried to do that. And so let's look at the data. Let's look at what was there. Yeah. Let's look at the pre-existing guidance from places like the federal government and the CDC about mass lockdowns in response to a pandemic. This is why they threw this stuff out years ago. And so here we are. We're still, you know, we're still moving through this top-down regime. And you're you're calling it out with from the WHO, and it happens all the way down here to the state level and the local level. Here, so we have to be vigilant against the, against those threats. In, in Maine, did you have like I know in California there were some sheriffs uh, who just said we're not going to enforce these lockdowns and mask rules. But was there any local law enforcement who wouldn't enforce it? Was Maine particularly actually was Maine particularly bad in actually trying to enforce this and keep everything shut down? Was it a heavy hand? Uh, I know like in New York, Governor Cuomo was threatening businesses and almost mafia style with his threats against them. What was Maine like in terms of that? There were certainly threats against businesses. It did depend on where you were, I think. And, and at some point the state caught up. I was living out in a rural area, even in Southern Maine at the time. And from my commute into uh, the, the coastal area near Portland uh, to back home, you could see the different views of, of folks and how much they really cared for the social distancing and all things like that. And so as the summer of 2020 progressed, a lot of those businesses in those small towns were visited by the CDC or the, you know, the governor's office at, at the time it was under a civil state of emergency. And that's a whole, I think that's a whole nother can of worms that states have to contend with is how much power do you give the executive branch in these, in these times? And does the executive branch get to just make all of these rules because they decide we're in an emergency. Um, and so this is, this is the follow-up with that. They end up cracking down on some of these businesses. You know, it was interesting. There was a state representative who had since who's who has since moved away, but his wife was running a coffee shop just down the street in our capital city from the CDC office. Uh, and you can imagine they got a few visits. Um, and I think it was just because he was there, uh, wrong place, wrong time. He's speaking out against it. And uh, it was it was to me, it was transparent that the state was just targeting people um, based on what they were saying and what what they were representing. Um, so even, even though, you know, there were, there were plenty of medical exemptions and, and there are plenty of, there are plenty of documentation and all of these things they didn't care. And, and I think it was that laid it all bare that they'll say, okay, so it's all for health and safety. But even if you have a medical exemption, we're still going to steamroll that. And, you know, that, that philosophy carried all the way through to the state vaccine mandates 
and, and all of this. And it's just, you just see the seed of that uh, planted where they just threw away all the guidance and then just plowed forward with this in, in 2020. Well, having done that report, is there any indication that the governor uh, and any of the legislators, anyone who pushed this, the public health official, did anyone ever admitted, A, what they argued wasn't effective, B, that they overdid it, that they issued an apology, have they said this won't happen again, anything like that along those lines? None of that. In fact, our CDC director, who was uh, who was CDC director at the time, he's now the, the vice uh, deputy, I believe he's number two at the federal CDC. So no, 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 he's... We've been failing up around here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he, he he dutifully followed the guidance and the narrative. And so he was rewarded for that. Well, you bring up a very good point. Uh, you say, you know, th this was obviously just unbridled power with no check. And we saw this, you know, I, I say and I say this in all earnest and some people don't like it, but the greatest single blunder. And I argue if you have something you'd like to challenge it with or something you think is a greater single blunder that any president has made in the last 50 years was Donald Trump signing the COVID emergency decree. Now you could argue he didn't have all the facts or he shouldn't have, but you know, had he known what he knows now, but he did sign it. And that literally allowed for every state governor, mayor to become essentially dictators overnight for years on end where they could just issue mandates and close stuff. So my question is, how do you know, you, there's been no remorse how do we fight this emergency power reform? Is this something that all 50 states have to fight? Is there a separate one we can fight at the federal? In other words, shouldn't there be like a seven day, say declaration where you can have unbridled power by the executive in an alleged emergency, but then have immediate call of legislators to meet. And so your actual people can vote, like your representatives can vote on whether to continue this state of emergency. What's the story with that? Don't we, in other words, what kind of emergency power reform does America need that was essentially we could see all the flaws after uh, after COVID? Yeah, I think an example that you bring up is a great way to formulate that, but it does have to happen on the state level. I mean, we do have a federal all emergencies states, act so that, yeah. yeah, there is a federal emergencies law that, you know, the states can now can get money if the federal government has an emergency out there for it. Um, but it really has to follow the state declaration because the states have the, the police powers. Um, so it has to happen every in every state. And that's why we pursued that um, 50. We, we pursued a 50 state scorecard based on emergency powers at Maine policy to try to figure yes. out what what the differences were with, between the different states. And yeah, you know, we were talking about that. If why shouldn't there be a standard process? If if the governor believes there is emergency, why shouldn't she approach the legislature every week or two? You know, if we're in an emergency, it's it means it's fire unless. Uh, yeah, unless they can vote. Go ahead. Sorry. Right. I mean, if you're in an emergency, it, it sort of assumes that it's an urgent, imminent threat happening at the moment. It's sort of self-explanatory in a way. An emergency should be obvious. And so I didn't think it was so, so unreasonable to say, hey, how about every couple of weeks or a month even come back? We were in a 15 month state of emergency where the governor just decided the terms when it starts, when it ends. And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of states that are like that. Well, what kind of effort is there? Is there an organization? Is your organization, is anyone actually have like a template for all 50 states to introduce these and have them passed or have any states i believe florida has done i think even pennsylvania may have done some reforms but i haven't kept track but are there any states that are leading the way like say hey this will not happen again we've reformed state law yeah i think pennsylvania did a good job and the funny thing about that was it had to happen through a ballot initiative because the legislature uh, the, the governor had vetoed it and so in order to override the governor's veto yeah. of 
a sensible emergency powers reform, similar to what you suggest. I can't remember the details of it, but that was the best one that I had seen in terms of reforms happening over the pandemic. And it's right. It's require the governor to come back to the legislature every two weeks, every few weeks and uh, present their case and make sure that there is a, uh, an emergency. And then the legislature gets to decide whether that's true or not via two thirds vote. If there's an emergency, it should be obvious. You should be able to get two thirds of the legislature to vote to continue those powers. If not, let's go back to normal governance where the legislative branch governs the the lawmaking and not the executive branch. Um, and I, it was just this this tendency to turn our whole constitutional system on its head, was which was uh, really, really bothersome for us. Well, it also goes back, and I'll get your thoughts on this. 2001, George W. Bush does the COVID, not COVID, the terrorism, declares the 9-11 uh, terrorism emergency declaration. We're still living under that. And that led to a lot of, uh, obviously, uh, freedoms being hinged upon led to a lot of federal power. Of course, the Patriot Act helped turn us into the surveillance state. Uh, tell me a little bit of what, you what your thoughts are on the 9-11 uh, emergency declaration and just the legislation and what how America transformed after 9-11. Oh, man, there's so much there with the, the authorization of use of military force, which has just been carried through and all the things that the federal government has done in the, in the Middle East since then to the Patriot Act, where ushered in the whole uh, travel surveillance state where our our ability, our, our freedom to travel within the United States has been restricted. I mean, to the the whole surveillance of uh, phone records. I mean, the the revel the the revelations of uh, was that Assange that that the federal government was collecting in mass phone records, metadata records of United States citizens instead of getting an individualized warrant, which the Fourth Amendment requires taking a warrant just of AT&T's entire user database and then taking that. And yeah, I think since then we've seen a huge erosion of individual liberty in the favor of centralized government power. And then all the way to these international organizations that our power is even being uh, sort of shuffled up the chain and, and away from the people. I think if we start to look at individuals as people who should be empowered to create the best life that they want to see in this world uh, and not just some, some, filler of, of taxpayers. Um, you know, I, I think, I think we can get to a, a much better place where we're not just in mass shutting down the world because there's some kind of threat that's, that's invisible, whether it, you know, whether it's terrorism or if it's a new virus or, or, or anything, I think it's, um, it's really troubling to see how, how the elites will just, it's kind of uh, how the elites will go towards that totalitarian impulse. I think we all have it. It's it's innate in the human nature, in human nature. And I think it's sad that that's where folks will go uh, when there's a problem. Yeah, you uh, on your Twitter feed, uh, you retweeted about the I guess the NSA. Uh, Jake Sullivan basically doesn't believe uh, in the Fourth Amendment of the United States. He actually says, "quote We do not believe that serves the national security interests of the United States." Talking about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to require a warrant. For every uh, for, to, to query from ever of lawfully collected data, what's going on at the NSA? They no longer believe uh, that you know they they no longer believe they need court orders or a warrant. They can just basically surveil and and seize anything they'd like. Right. This is the National Security Administration, and you know in D.C. we have all all, all the uh, absurdly named uh, federal agencies. So of course, in the name of national security, they have to take away your rights. And I think it's it's terrible that we have to look at. United States citizens and the threat of 
the threat of the United States citizens' right uh, to be secure in their communications is somehow a national security threat. It's uh, we're just going to throw out due process um, entirely and 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 surveil folks like that. It's um, it's really sad that we've gotten to this this point. We have to continually be vigilant about it, but it's just you, you have to lament the fact that we have gotten to this point where from the White House podium. Uh, representatives of the White House are saying that your right to due process is a national security threat. Well, it's amazing how people can have personal. I mean, I remember when it was Dick Cheney and George Bush, both whom I loathe now, but that's another story. Uh, when they were talking about torture, uh, and I remember the media was saying, "Oh, you know, you, you, we can't allow torture," and they were doing, you know, they were accused of doing torture, and they were defending it. But well, they weren't. I remember at the time thinking, "Well, they're not U.S. citizens." Well, once you do it to non-U.S. citizens, it's just a matter of time before they do it to U.S. citizens. Um, what are your thoughts, just in general, just on the, the, the in terms of America? If you like an American Freedom Index. To, uh, how would you rate it the last 50 years? Would you say the big bump would be like 9-11 and then COVID? Those are the two big bumps against our freedom. Uh, how would you rate that in terms of Americans losing freedom in America, be freedom becoming you know, much more imperial in America, say since 1970? What events would have threatened oh, our man. freedom? Yeah, 9-11 has, and, and COVID have got to be the biggest ones for sure, the bumps in the road there. I mean... If you're if you're there are a lot of different ways to measure that, and you can measure it by pages of federal code or you know words in the federal code. I mean, geez, I don't even know what that looks like now. You could look at it in the uh, in the value of the dollar or um, or the national debt, and, and those things are direct threats to freedom as well. If our government is racking up public debt, that hangs over the neck of all of our all of our necks and all of our children and grandchildren potentially as well. And that those are direct threats to our livelihood and our ability to produce and for our families and create a world that we want for the future. It means, you know, so the those policies of the last 50 years, whether it's those huge spending programs, welfare, the 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 war on drugs, the war on terror, you know, all of these massive spending projects all the way up to COVID, the the biomedical industrial complex that we've seen just yeah. massively inflate under COVID in the years past i mean all of these are are threats to our freedom so we, we've we've been in a steady decline but for sure the the uh the decline has become steeper in those last 20 years without a doubt and i think the last five years with inflation and everything has seen it even uh even get worse all right we're talking to nick murray a political freedom advocate from new from new england this is unleashed with mark Moran. when we come back nick i'd like to ask you about the potential for Biden to declare a national climate emergency, which would give him 130 executive powers by which to bypass Congress. The troubling trend toward corporate government collusion we see everywhere from whether it's ESG. And then I want to talk to you about the WHO pandemic treaty to close out. So we'll be right back. Unleashed with Mark Morano. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. One of the things, if you're putting forth a new idea or you have an idea that you think is revolutionary and can actually lead to a change in the way people look at things is that that idea can start owning you. Now, if you've been listening to me on TNT, I've been talking about something called hydrothermal vents. The reason I got into this is because they affect the weather that if these hot spots develop in the ocean, well, guess what? The re weather reacts and I'm just getting sick and tired of them developing out of nowhere and basically catching me off guard. I don't like it. When I put together a weather forecast, I'm looking at certain events going on in the atmosphere, and then if something happens in the oceans that changes that, and then the atmospheres react, 
I can't see that stuff. In any case, I've been pushing this hydrothermal vent idea for quite some time. And a lot of people say, you have no peer review. Well, first of all, I've walked up and down many beaches and reviewed the piers out there, but that's a different kind of peer. They have no peer review that it's not happening. And I'm going to quote from an article, and the name of the article is How Hydrothermal Vents and Other Seabed Structures Heat Our Oceans, that says this, overwhelming amounts of reliable information taken from hundreds of research studies, that's right, hundreds, and you don't even know about them because no one wants you to, prove that emissions of superheated fluids and gases from the estimated 10 million ocean floor geological features including these hydrothermal vents, are responsible for warming the Earth's oceans, not human activities. If you find out what is warming the oceans, that is the key to what's warming the atmosphere. And it would blow the whole missive out of the water. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. JDRS vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. Type 1 Diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the Type 1 Diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 Diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community, and we're accountable to the Type 1 Diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who's supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Examining the issues. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. We're continuing our discussion with Nick Murray, education policy expert. His website is npmurray.com. Uh, he's done reports on, for the Maine Policy Institute. Welcome back, Nick. Uh, I wanted to ask hey, you about Vivek Ramaswamy eloquently said that in 1980, when Reagan was elected, we were, he warned of the evils of big government. And so for 30 years, we focused on fighting big government, right? Well, he said the, over the last few decades, something else is even more sinister has happened, and we haven't been paying that much attention and fighting it, and that's the corporate government collusion. And just to give you examples there, you have like BlackRock, uh, Larry Fink, pushing this environment, social governance, where businesses are, are are withholding loans essentially to companies unless they go along with a Green New Deal style agenda that no one voted for. Remember, the Green New Deal was never voted on, never passed Congress. Uh, it was introduced, but never even really had hearings on it. It was, yeah, you know, they don't actually care if it passes because they're imposing it through every every cabinet agency of Biden is a um climate agency, according to the Biden administration. And you have all the executive orders, and then you have the corporate government collusion. We also see that 
for instance, in electric cars, you have an Australian bank say they're not going to give out car loans to anyone who buys gas-powered cars. You have the World Bank threatening automakers through Nicholas Stern at a meeting saying they're not going to fund the creation and the continued production of gas-powered cars. And again, people don't vote for this kind of you know, financial banking system, corporate government collusion. Where did that threat come from, you think? Has it always been there? And the other, and the final question would be, is it is government controlling corporations, which is the typical control of fascism, or is it the other way around now with the Bill Gates and all these foundations? Are the, are the corporations controlling our government? It's particularly the military industrial complex. Um, anyway, that's a lot to throw out there, but that seems to be one of my focuses is this corporate government collusion more so than just big government in quotes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We have to look at the the collusion of big government and big business. And I think one has sort of fed the other because we've had this large regulatory state that puts barriers up in certain industries. And then the large players who are left in that industry then are pouring money into lobbyists to get further regulations and further laws written in their favor. And I think we're just in this feedback loop, or at least it's been happening um, it, just a lot in the last 20, 30 years. You mentioned the defense industrial complex. That's probably the biggest driver. And I, you know, I, I think of this today when we hear of the next Christmas tree spending plan in Congress, the next however many billions of dollars for Ukraine and Israel and everything else that goes into it, plus the border or whatever else. Uh, but I, I, it makes it makes me think of uh, how we're just we're just completely mortgaging people's future with with regard to we're just thinking about right now, just without regard to the to the future. So uh, so the corporate governance thing, I think, is a, a function of big government over time and just being this this uh, this calcified regulatory state that's lobbied for and, and perpetuated by the big industries. Yes. All right. Well, all right. And you had um, we went, uh, we're talking about emergency decrees earlier. Biden has been pushed by the Weather Channel, pushed by uh, many climate activists, senators, uh, Chuck Schumer, AOC. She's not a senator, but Senator Markey to declare a national climate emergency. According to Center for Biological Diversity, that would give Biden 130 new executive powers, wartime powers by which to bypass democracy. And he could do a whole host of powers, everything from uh, you know regulating even our interstate highway system or gas and travel and stay, you know, think of COVID style type stuff. NBC News actually said it would give him COVID-like lockdown powers, according to NBC News. How much of a threat do you see that as right now, especially with, you know, we're going into an election year, it might be hard, but it might be one of the first things he does if he gets reelected. Uh, what do you see in terms of a, you know, in that term of scenario where you have a basically wartime powers to impose the Green New Deal in America? Yeah, the emergency powers thing is so important because it opens the floodgates for the abuses of power. And, and I think you make a great point in the fact that the controlling of movement and the controlling of whether events happen and certain things based on whatever public health emergency or carbon emergency or whatever is the next thing, it becomes this, this unraveling of individual liberty. And the, the emergency powers declaration from the federal government allows the states to go and then, and then do that. And the money flows and the powers then flow to those those state governments as well. I think it's a it's a big problem. It's something that we have to look out for. The federal emergency declaration is probably less impactful overall to people's lives than the state, but it flows because of the federal declarations out there, the states, that's sort of an open door for the states to say, hey, let's let's go get this money. But I think you make a great point is that we're governing by regulatory, the governing by the regulatory state where, you know, the state of Maine is taking the California rule to ban gas powered vehicles yes, in exactly. 10 well, years or whatever it is. 
And it's crazy. I mean, we live in a state with we're 40 people per square mile in this state. Uh, you know, you live out in the woods, you have an oil burner. You know, the, the power company here has come under a lot of public scrutiny, um, you know, for a lot of reasons. But I think a big one is because we're the most heavily forested state in the country. And a lot of the power outages are down trees out out there. And so we rely a lot on our independent decentralized heating and energy sources here, wind or excuse me, wood uh, oil and heating oil and, all, and and this and liquid natural gas and, and, and uh, pipe natural gas and all of this. And so our, our state government is going and saying, you can't buy a gas powered vehicle per California's rules in the next 10 years. Uh, and we're going to actually replace all of this with wind and solar panels, which are just unreliable sources of energy, yeah. as you well know. And, and so we're we're trapped in the middle of this as well. Washington State, they're, you know, they're all California banning gas-powered uh, weed whackers and lawnmowers and everything else, threatening people with jail. I, I assume you know, Maine has a lot of diesel generators, too. Are they going to outlaw diesel generators and make you have to have a battery generator, which I guess would make no sense if you have a power outage, right? How would you, how would you charge a battery generator, man? <laughs> I don't know. You see those hilarious memes of the diesel generator on the the uh, trailer to uh, charging the Prius or whatever. Right. Yeah. The that, yeah. They, <laughs> I do. That's all what the time. we've come to here in Maine. Yeah, I mean, the, right. the range alone of the electric vehicles, you lose 40, 50 percent range in the cold. And so it's it's a really it's a tough sell for for Mainers. Well, you mentioned that back the gas powered cars. That basically this ban on gas powered cars, which is a de facto ban that Biden administration is trying to claim it's not banned. But California executive order by Governor Newsom, the California Air Resources Board, unelected bureaucracy imposes these rules. I think it's 18 states trigger laws, including Maine, including my state of Virginia. Then you have the Biden EPA, which is now basically putting huge corporate average fuel economy standards on vehicles and a bunch of other things to literally start choking and rationing their gas powered cars. You have all the pressure on the automakers to go electric. And now they're finally fighting back. And you have, I think it's Avis rental car released a third of their- right. Uh, electric cars because of maintenance and lack of consumer demand. How much more damning can you get for a rental car company to say there's no demand? That's what the automakers are saying. But that's my point is gas powered cars are being banned without a vote. Restrictions on meat is happening now. You're with the methane restrictions, the EPA, the net zero goals. We're seeing all the farmers revolt in Europe. They're going after high yield agriculture. Um, how this is happening. And then, of course, you have the restrictions on free speech. And of course, intelligence agencies working with Twitter and uh, the old Twitter and Facebook and and all of these social media companies to basically suppress free speech. No, the Congress never voted on any of this, but yet it's all happening to us, kind of like those our straws became um, paper straws from plastic without anyone voting on that. So how do we fight that whole thing right now? I, I I firmly believe that you have to fight on the state level. I, I think I think the federal government is is kind of a lost cause. It's it's a tough it's in a tough state, and I'm not really sure how to make change there. So that's why I've devoted my career to working on the state level and in my state and in our neighboring states in New England. And I think just highlighting the absurdity of this stuff. I think normal people, average everyday people who don't think about politics all the time, can understand how the math just doesn't work and how you, a system doesn't work if you're removing power sources and then asking people to buy more things that use more of that yeah. power source. So I think people are seeing right through and saying, wait a second, why are we getting California's rules that tell us to yeah. use something that doesn't work well here? And I mean, a lot. it's, it's funny, a lot doesn't of people- Doesn't work well in California, yeah. It doesn't work well in California either, and and I think it's it, it's really funny because a lot of Mainers go to uh, Florida. A lot of a lot of folks yeah. kind of split the year in, in Florida and Maine, and and so even the solar panel companies down there will come up here and say, 
we can barely get this stuff done in Florida. You have half the sunlight. <laughs> so you're going to have a much more difficult time getting enough energy to actually you know, feed your state. But that's not what it's about. It's, it's about getting those, those contracts and those subsidies to the companies that are friends yes. with our politicians like Senator Angus King, who has a long story history of...